Okay, if you want to join me in prayer, Jesus, we just thank you for our time together, just able to catch up with family, able to spend time worshiping you, able to learn from your word, and Lord, we just open up our hearts and our minds and our lives as fully as we can to you and to your spirit and to your word and what you want to say and do in us today, and we just ask you, Lord, that we would grow as your disciples more and more. Um, this morning and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. So good morning. My name's Grant. I'm one of the pastors or elders here, if we haven't met. Uh, nice to see some new faces in the crowd today. And we are continuing in Matthew chapter 6 this morning, working our way through our About That Life series, looking at the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And over the last few weeks, we've been in a bit of a three-part mini-series, looking at some of the practices or spiritual disciplines of the people of God, looking at prayer and giving, and now today we're looking at fasting. And if you look at Matthew 6, verse 2 verse 5 and verse 16, Jesus says this. He says, when you give to the needy, when you pray, and when you fast. Not if, but when. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. Not if, because these things are just things that Christians do. We are praying, giving, fasting people. That's what followers of Jesus are. But there's something else that you might notice in Matthew chapter 6, which is pretty significant as we come to these things. Other than the how to pray section that Maria preached on so well last week, we've got a section on fasting and a section on giving that has no how-to component at all. It's just when you fast and when you give without any of the practicalities that we've come to know and love in a sermon. And there's a reason for that, which is important as we get into today's message. So that in Jesus' day, and with this audience listening to this message, fasting and giving were just so ingrained into the culture and into life. They had grown up in families that practiced these things. They had grown up being taught this, and in a culture where this was just the norm. Everyone fasted, everyone prayed, everyone gave, so this was what you did. So the starting point when Jesus is preaching this is very different from for us today. Their worldview, their understanding of how things worked, how life was built, how society was shaped was very different from us, coming from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different visions of life, all sorts of different experiences growing up. If Jesus was sharing this message today, he would have a very different starting point to where he did with the Sermon on the Mount. And it's kind of similar to when we were speaking about sexuality a few weeks ago and marriage a few weeks ago. For all of Jesus' audience, they had grown up with lives that had been shaped by the Scriptures and shaped by the Word of God. So their view, their understanding, their, their worldview around sexuality and marriage was just that. And it had been shaped since they were born in the community they were a part of and by the Scriptures. And similarly for us today, we don't have that background we don't come to texts like this or ideas like this with the same shaping. So we need to take some steps a little bit further back to get a full biblical understanding to bring us to the place where Jesus' audience would have started from. So that's kind of what we're going to be doing today. Last week, Maria shared on how to pray from the Lord's Prayer. The week before, Andy shared on how to give, looking at the scriptures around that. And today, my sermon is called The Satisfied Life but really we're focusing mainly on fasting, and I just want to soften the blow a little bit with a little bit of feasting too. 
Now, there is a deep link between spirituality and food in the Bible, which is something I find really appealing and interesting. In fact, one writer says this. He says, if you take all of the mountains and meals out of the Bible, you have a very short book. (laughs) Which for us, in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, when we're talking about food, is very true. We've got mountains and food in this sermon today. There is a deep link between spirituality and food for the people of God and between food and ministry when it comes to the life of Jesus, which I think can seem a little bit strange to us because food is so ordinary in every day. Food is PB&Js. Food, as we experienced on Friday night, is dabbing grease off Costco pizza. And food is like warming up leftovers that you've left in the fridge that you want to eat because you don't want to make a meal. Food is so ordinary in every day. But food can also be extraordinary and transcendent. You know, there are so many shows on TV about food. Have you done that on Netflix? Like looked at all of the cooking shows, food, travel shows, all of that. Then there's really expensive cookbooks, celebrity chefs, which must have been like a wild thought to people 20, 30 years ago. They could never imagine a celebrity chef. Maybe, I guess, Julia Childs is a thing. But before that, no one could have ever imagined that. There's just so much out there about food. It's, it's everything. Michelin star restaurants, three Michelin star restaurants that can charge you hundreds or thousands of dollars for a meal, and we happily pay it for the experience of this transcendence, eating this meal in this place, in this way. Food can be very ordinary and very extraordinary. And I've experienced this since we moved here in April last year, because I know when we had May as a month to just kind of settle into living in San Diego, we asked a bunch of different people, what should we do with our time? And nearly everyone we spoke to gave us recommendations of restaurants and food we needed to try and bars we needed to go to. I was like, is that it? Is that all San Diego's got? It just seemed to be the thing. Everyone was so centered around food and experience and meals and eating. Anyone in the room watched the show Parts Unknown before? Okay, whoa, a little woo from the back. That's, that's what I like. Uh, it's an amazing travel food show. It's a little bit older now. It was hosted by the late Anthony Bourdain, and he would go to these places around the world and engage with cultures and people around meals. It was really successful. It was nominated for 31 Emmy Awards. It won 12, so there was something it was doing right, and really it's just an amazing show of storytelling about culture, about places, about people, about life. And I think what made it so special is the way Bourdain engaged with people. He would sit at a three Michelin star restaurant or he would sit on the streets on like a plastic cart uh, outside a food truck in a developing world with cheap food, eating in these places with people, asking questions and hearing stories and learning about the place all around the medium of food. And it could be, as he said, in LA, eating at In-N-Out, which he said was his favorite restaurant in Los Angeles, you guys know. Or it could be eating blood soup in Southeast Asia, or whatever it would be, just going and having these experiences. But the show was about more than food. It was about a connection between people. It was about the stories of these people and their lives. It was a very, very human show. And it's one of the things we learn from that show and from so much of life is that connection between people happens around a meal. As we eat together, as we speak together, there's a connection that happens between us, which doesn't just happen in normal life as we do other things. And as we study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four biographies of Jesus' life, it's one of the things we see. It's that Jesus sits around a meal with people and eats and does profound ministry around those meals and connects with people. 
theologian named Arthur Boland says, if you can read the Gospels without getting hungry, then you aren't paying attention. <laughs> My kind of book. Come on, you guys. Um, and what this means is as we work through the Gospels and as we work through the New Testament, it's interesting not just to look at Jesus and what he's teaching and what he's doing, the miracles he's performing, the healings he's doing, whatever it is. It's interesting to just look at the background a little bit and look at where these things are happening, the context where this is going on. Because so much of the action is going on, not in a church gathering like this, but outside or on the beach or at a barbecue or on a mountain or sometimes on the side of the road or at a well. There's all these different environments. But beyond all of those settings, so much of Jesus' ministry is happening in a home, around a table, around a meal. And there's a, quite a profound thing that I learned from Tim Chester's book, A Meal with Jesus. He says, there are three ways the New Testament speaks about the mission of the Son of God, which I want to show you guys. In Mark 10, verse 45, it says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve. Luke 19, 10, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, to help people be reunited with and reconciled to God. But Luke 7, verse 34 says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. I love it. Some of you, I, I thought I'd get an amen for that, you guys. What's going on today? A little glory hallelujah from the back. Um, but what Tim Chester says in his book around these ideas is that the first two scriptures there speak about Jesus' purpose, Jesus' mission and why he came. Jesus came to serve, not be served. Jesus came to give his life on the cross for the world, to die for our sins in our place. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Once I was lost, but now I have been found because Jesus came and sought me out to reconcile me to God. That was his purpose in coming. But I love what it says in Luke 7, not just why he came, but how he came was eating and drinking. And as we sing these songs to Jesus today, as we worship God and praise Him because He is worthy, we see that God is the one at the party. Jesus is the Savior at the dinner table, eating and drinking and speaking to people. And it makes me love Jesus more. I love this about Him so much. New Testament scholar Robert Karras says in Luke's gospel or biography of Jesus' life, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. I thought I'd give you a few examples of this for the doubters in the room. In Luke chapter 22, we've got the Last Supper, maybe the most famous meal of all time. You know, Leonardo da Vinci did his painting about that, and that spawned infinite memes about that moment. <laughs> the greatest meal of all time, Luke 22. But in John 2, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus performs his first miracle at a wedding feast at Cana in Galilee, multiplying water into wine. In Luke 7, a sinful woman washes Jesus' feet with perfume as an act of worship around a Pharisee's dinner table. In Luke 10, Mary and Martha, these sisters, welcome Jesus into their home for a meal where he does some profound ministry and teaching. In Luke 19, Zacchaeus' life is changed when Jesus invites himself to crash his dinner and eat with him in that evening. In Matthew 14 and 15, Jesus multiplies the loaves and fish to 5,000 and then 4,000 people. He feeds all of those people um, around his teaching. In John 21 verse 15, um, it says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus does ministry around brunch on the beach. After his crucifixion and resurrection, Peter has betrayed Jesus, denied Jesus, is filled with guilt and shame over what he's done. He's watched his Lord die on the cross after he has failed him. 
But Jesus, around a meal on the beach, a little casual barbecue, reinstates Peter and ministers to Peter and heals Peter and restores Peter, who would go on to be the leader of the early church. Then in Luke 24, Jesus again, after his resurrection, is walking down the road with two people, the, the road to Emmaus, teaching them from the scriptures, and he gets invited in for a meal, and he shares some boiled fish with them. Not my choice, but that's what Jesus had with them. And he reveals himself to them, and they see him, and they say their hearts burned within them as he taught them the scriptures. Lastly, and I won't get too much into this, in John 13 verse 1 to 17 verse 26, five chapters of scripture is set around one meal. If you haven't looked at that before, it is wild. These are some of the most famous moments in the New Testament, and this all happens around one meal that Jesus has with his disciples. That's where he washes their feet as this moment of welcoming them in and serving them, showing the kind of leader that he is. He gives them a new commandment saying that we should love others in the same way that he has loved us. He says to them that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. He speaks about the Holy Spirit and promises that he will give them the Spirit after his crucifixion and ascension. He commissions them and sends them out with purpose. And then he spends all of chapter 17 in prayer around that meal. And all five of those chapters, all of those huge moments that we might know from Scripture are happening in one evening as Jesus spends a whole night together with the disciples speaking and ministering and connecting and letting God work. That's what Jesus did. This was so much of his ministry and mission strategy as a long meal stretching into the evening with friends or strangers. I'm sure as a lot of us hear that, it probably makes us like Jesus more and think that is something I could do or that is something I could be a part of, or that is a way I would love to be used by God, connecting with people and helping them connect with Him around some food. But this sermon, The Satisfied Life, is less about food and feasting, which is a spiritual discipline. It's a practice of Christians for centuries. And it's more about fasting and being satisfied in Jesus. And as much as Jesus was a big food and connection with people guy, Jesus loved to do that. He was also a big fasting and withdrawing from people to be alone with the Father guy. Jesus loved the spiritual discipline of feasting where he would have really good food to celebrate God with people. But then he also loved the spiritual discipline of fasting where he would withdraw from people and get alone to be with God and to pray while he was hungry and be reminded of his reliance on his Father in heaven. The reason I wanted to connect those two things today is because I think there is such tension in Scripture between truths. You know, we, we talk about prayer and action or obedience. We talk about work and rest or Sabbath. We talk about giving and receiving. We talk about serving and being served or silence and solitude, being alone with God, but also community and being together with God's people. It's like these tensions throughout Scripture that go hand in hand. And here we see the same thing, these two practices of the church is to feast and celebrate God and then to fast and be alone with God and pray. And I know we've all got our preferences. That's one of the things we happen to do as Christians is so often we hear a teaching and we resonate with these downstream practices, things that come naturally to us, our personality type, we find easy and enjoyable to do and kind of push back on the upstream practices or the things that might seem harder to us or more uncomfortable to us or less accessible to us. 
and we kind of sweep those under the rug and we don't do those. But really, we do want to stretch ourselves, you know, to be a people who pray and a people who give and a people who fast. And honestly, for myself, feasting is the dream. I love good food. I know I've just confessed eating at Costco on Friday night, so you might not believe me on that. But I really do enjoy a good meal and celebrating and enjoying life around a table. And I'm sure many of you do too. I, I think some of you probably today hearing that feasting is a spiritual discipline. It, it's a practice of the church to worship and enjoy God is mind-blowing. Because the only time you've heard about food in church is when it's gluttony. You know, gluttony is a sin. Don't overeat. Don't do too much. But in 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And I know with that teaching today, I've lost some of you. And for the rest of the sermon, you're going to be thinking about lunch and dinner. You're like, I'm ready to get my praise on. Out with Hillsong, <laughs> in with hot dogs. Let's do it because you're excited. Food is good and you want to worship God in this way, which is such a good thing. Fasting, on the other hand, is something I struggle with and I don't particularly enjoy doing because it is hard and it is uncomfortable and it goes against my flesh to not eat during the day. I was chatting to Kelvin Rogers outside. He was on his way to kids ch uh, ministry and he said, oh, what are you teaching on today? Jackie was there, Clive was there. And I said, oh, I'm gonna be talking about fasting. And he's like, so why do we fast? I was like, oh, to make more time to pray. And he said, can't you fast while you, uh, pray while you eat? I was like, yeah, you can, but he's like, <laughs> I don't get it, man. I was like, well, we're wanting to make more time so that we can actually, you know, cut out grocery shopping and cooking time and eating time and cleaning up dishes time so that we can be with God. He's like, can't you just pray while you do all of that? And it was a really good point that he raised. And some of you are thinking the same thing. You're like, can't I just pray? You know, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. I pray in all of these things, man. What are you talking about? But one of the reasons that we focus on fasting is because actually... When we do things in a distracted way, we don't enjoy them fully. So if we sit around the dinner table with our phones out, trying to connect with people around a meal, but we're on our phone and we're replying to messages or emails, we're not really present in either way. And for some of us, our praying is always on the go, in the car, um, while we're at work, in the midst of things. We never have focused times alone with God in prayer. And that is what fasting is. It is carving out time in our lives to be alone with Him, focused to enjoy Him and to hear from Him. And I like that. I don't like not eating, but I do like the thought of carving out time to be alone with God. And both fasting and feasting are these physical embodied ways that we engage with God around food. Both are ways that we respond to God with our bodies, which I think is an important thing because we can be so dualistic, you know? We can talk about the spiritual parts of our lives. Like we come to a Sunday gathering or we go to a GC meeting or we read our Bible and pray or we have some kind of experience with God, some kind of encounter with the Spirit, some kind of sense of God speaking to us about something and we put that in one box and then the rest of life goes in the other box and there's this divide between them. But when we fast and when we feast, there's a bringing together of the two. It's an embodied way of engaging with God and worshiping God and responding to God. And that's what Jesus calls us to, to love God with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength, physically, emotionally, spiritually, holistically, to be serving and following and enjoying and obeying and worshiping Him. And that's what we do when we fast and when we feast, which makes so much sense. 
Food is probably the most universal, important daily part of our lives. It's like our, our entire day is shaped around food. So what do you do? What, what does your schedule look like? In the morning you wake up and well, I make a cup of tea first, but then I have a little bit of breakfast, you know, and I go to work. There might be a snack somewhere around 10 o'clock in the morning just to keep me going. Then there's lunch at 12 or 1. And then you know what? On your way home from work, sometimes you stop at the grocery store, you get food, you go home, you cook, you eat, you do whatever you do that evening, then you clean the dishes and you go to bed. Our entire day is punctuated around food and organized around food. So when we fast, we pause the way we normally do life. We stop normal life as it is so that we can engage with God. We stop shopping, we stop cooking, we stop cleaning, we stop eating so that we can make more time to be with Him. Everything is interrupted and disrupted and broken when we fast. And when we fast, we feel hungry. You're like, I know, that's why I don't do it. But when we feel hungry and when our stomachs grumble, we're reminded of our need. We're reminded that we don't like this. We like to be satisfied. We like to be full. And at the same time, we're reminded of the fact that what we need ultimately is not a good meal. It's Jesus. He is the one that satisfies us in the way nothing in our culture and nothing else in our world can. So when our stomachs grumble, it's almost like a prayer from our body to ourselves, reminding us of the fact that Jesus is the one we need, not that burger you're craving or whatever it might be. And of course, as soon as we start fasting, the cravings come every single time. I don't know, those who fasted here before, I've had it, I'm fasting for the day. No one knows, I'm keeping it secret. And then someone walks into my office saying, hey Grant, we've got all of this extra cake or delicious food, would you like some? Or do you wanna join me for a meal? Or would you like this? And there's this craving in my body for that burger or that hot dog or that donut or that California burrito, which is so good to you guys, and I want it. I know back home in Durban, some guys were going through a church-wide fast and they were really craving McDonald's. So they went. They didn't break the rules of their fast. They could drink drinks. So they got their McDonald's meal and they took it home and they put it in a food processor and they blended it up because it was a liquids fast. They were on a liquids fast and they drank their McDonald's meal to the glory of God. You know what I mean? <laughs> I want to just agree with you. I think it sounds revolting. Can you imagine that bun? Those chips all like blended up. It sounds revolting. And beyond the fact that it sounds gross, I think they missed the point of what was going on. You know, it's not just, it's not just, okay, I haven't broken the rules. I was drinking liquids, not eating food. But actually, this is filling their stomachs, you know. When we fast, what we're trying to do is be confronted by the fact that we need something external to ourselves, that we are not self-sufficient, that we don't have everything that we need on our own, and ultimately, that we are reliant on God for everything. He is our creator, He is our sustainer, He is our provider, and we need Him. So we pray. Fasting is a reminder to our bodies of the way that the world and the universe works. And the fact that our belief so often that we can do this on our own with enough grit and energy and determination is just not true. We need Him. In the Bible, we see fasting practiced in a number of different ways or for a number of different reasons. One is to make more time to pray. 
Secondly, is as a part of worship. We see that in Luke 2 and in Acts 13. Thirdly, is as repentance for sin. In the book of Jonah, what happens is after God sends the prophet Jonah to Nineveh to preach to them, they are convicted, and as a nation, they repent. They repent individually, but they repent corporately for their sin, and they repent by fasting as an embodied action in response to God. One of the ways or the reasons that we fast is also as a prophetic protest to injustice in society. We fast to mourn the way things are in our world, the brokenness and injustice that we see around us. And we fast because we long for the coming kingdom and the day when Jesus will return and make things the way they should be. And lastly, we fast to consecrate ourselves to God, to separate ourselves to God for what he has called us to do. And this morning what I want to do is just look briefly at three passages of Jesus from Matthew just to help us practically to be able to fast. And the first is from Matthew 6. It's our passage in the Sermon on the Mount, and it says this in verse 16 to 18. Whenever you fast, because this is something we do as Christians, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret. And you, your Father who sees in secret will remind you. Beyond the fact that this is just something that Christians do, which we've talked about already, is the fact that when Jesus calls us to fast and speaks about it, the first thing he does is he goes to our motives, which must tell us something about our own hearts and the way that they work. Straight away, Jesus, speaking about fasting, says, don't fast for these reasons. And the main reason is don't fast to make it about yourself. Make sure that your fasting is about God. And he speaks about people who act in such a way externally so that they get glory from people from the fact that they are fasting. And I think he's saying this. On your days of fasting, these days when you're carving out time to be alone with God, to seek Him and be with Him, you shouldn't be spending time in front of the mirror looking at yourself thinking, do I look just off enough that people are going to look at me and know that I'm fasting today? Like if I dishevel my outfit a bit and just mess with my hair, if I do my makeup in a certain way that I don't look the way I normally do, maybe a little bit tired, a little bit gaunt, a little bit weaker than normal, then maybe people will know and I'll get the credit for fasting. That's what the people are doing in these days. They're making sure people can tell, oh, Grant is fasting. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. That's not the way it should be. It shouldn't be that you look a certain way. You don't wash your face. You don't do your hair. You don't dress right. So that people will come to you and say, Grant, is everything okay? Like, you, you don't look yourself. And I can say, oh, don't I? <coughs> oh, that's weird. <laughs> Sorry. You know what? I actually feel amazing. I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm full of joy in the Lord because I've been fasting the last few days. I haven't been eating. No, I've been spending time with the Lord, and it has been good, brother. Glory, hallelujah. And I say that sort of thing so that people would think more highly of me. I'm doing this in a self-righteous way to present myself in a way to people, which maybe wouldn't be true before God. I was trying to think of maybe modern versions of this because I, I don't think fasting is as much of a flex in our culture. But maybe for us, it is something that we make our fasting more about weight loss or about kind of dieting. And we spiritualize it and we say, actually, I'm fasting at the moment, you know, spend more time with God. But actually, the real motive behind this is I could lose a few pounds, you know, I'd like to get into shape, get ready for summer, that sort of thing. 
And the real reason behind our fasting is not about God, it's about something else, like how we look or what people might think of us. So Jesus is worried about our motive when it comes to fasting. So when we fast, it is a good thing to check our motives and say, why am I doing this? Doesn't mean we can't tell people that we are fasting. This isn't something secret that we have to do. It's just that when we tell people that we're fasting, we're not doing it so that we look good. We're doing it to just share what is part of our lives. Secondly, if you go into Matthew chapter 4, two chapters back, Jesus is fasting. And he's in the desert, in the wilderness, for 40 days and 40 nights, not eating at all. And it says this in Matthew 4, verse 1 to 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, which the first time I realized that blew my mind, that the Spirit was the one that led him to this place. And he was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I just want to highlight there the fact that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to a lonely place and a hungry place where he was tempted by the devil or where the lies of Satan were on blast in his head and in his heart. The Spirit led him into that place, not to punish him, but to grow him. Not to punish him, but to prepare him. Not to punish him, but so that he would rely on God. And if you were in that place today where you feel like I'm in the desert, I'm in the wilderness, I'm alone, I'm hungry for satisfaction. Maybe God has led you there into that place for the sake of what he is wanting to do in you and through you. Would you bring your loneliness, your wilderness moments, your temptation moments, your, your moments where the lies of the enemy are so loud, would you bring those before the Father? Because maybe he is at work in that place in you. And what we see with Jesus is as he's there, as he has been set apart by God, as he's in silence and solitude, as he's fasting and as he's hungry, he is not denying himself, but he is feasting. And that is the big idea of this concept, is that fasting is not being hard on yourself or punishing yourself. It is feasting on Jesus to be satisfied in him. When Satan tempts Jesus to turn rocks into bread so that his hunger will go away, so that his stomach will be full and that grumbling will go away, Jesus responds in verse 4 and he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When we fast, we're not punishing ourselves. We're just acknowledging that there's more to satisfaction than physical food and drink. Actually, yes, food is amazing. When we fast, we look forward to that pizza. We look forward to that meal at the end as we celebrate the fast is finished. But at the same time, when we fast, we realize that actually the word of God is a, a nourishment and food for our soul that we cannot find anywhere else. When we fast, we remind ourselves that there is more to life than just these things outside of us. The things our culture tells us are so important and so necessary that we would be satisfied. When we fast, we feel the desire for those things, and we are reminded that actually the ultimate thing that that desire points to is to Him. When we fast, we fast to feast on God's Word and be satisfied. And the big idea is that that satisfaction is not from food, it is from Jesus. So let's get practical about fasting for a second, because for some of us, this is brand new. 
We had a moment a few years ago um, when I was leading a church in Durban on the east coast of South Africa. Um, we announced a fast we were going to be doing as a church together, and someone came up to me afterwards. They were new to the church. I don't think they were a Christian. I think they were exploring faith, and they said to me, you guys do intermittent fasting here? That's really cool, and I, I, sometimes in those moments, I don't know what to say, and I kind of was like, yeah, thanks, man. That's great. And then later I was thinking, no, this is not a trend we're jumping in on. This is an ancient practice of the people of God that we've been doing for thousands of years. We're not doing this because this is cool now. We're doing this because this is one of the ways that the people of God engage with God. So how do we do that? As I've said already, when we fast, we are making time to be with God and to pray. If we're not praying during a fast, really, we are on hunger strike. We are doing some kind of crash diet or something like that. Prayer needs to be part of our fasting. And as we make time by not cooking, by not doing grocery shopping or, or being clever to prepare, I know for those of you with kids, this can be a little bit different and we might not have as much time to do this as those who don't have kids. But as we carve out this time, as we remove some of the pieces from our lives, we're trying to fill that time with prayer and scripture and time alone in God's presence, enjoying and hearing from Him. And because this is about time and positioning ourselves to be with God, you might choose to cut out other things too, non-food things like social media or TV or, or things that fill up chunks of your time that you could be using to be with Him. Things like the Word of God that, that satisfy you or fill you in different ways that actually for a while you decide, I am not going to focus on those because I want to focus on Jesus. For some of us, we might need to prepare for this and like build towards this because this is new. I think normally when I fasted in the past, there's been water and juice during the day and a soup at night. Not like a really meaty, thick, heavy soup, but just something to kind of nourish you, especially if you're doing a few days of fasting. And again, probably not to fast more than three days, especially from food without speaking to a doctor, because actually that can be quite significant to our bodies. So we want to be careful and wise about that. For some of us in this room, actually we should be speaking to a doctor before we fast because of medical conditions or health conditions we might have. If you're pregnant, that would be an example. Or if you currently are struggling with an eating disorder or have in the past, we, we want to be wise about this because this might not be the same for you as it is for everyone else. You might want to speak to a professional who can help you to prepare for this or to decide how you do this. But for all of us, in some ways, we can cut things out of our lives that we can prioritize God and spend time with Him in prayer. But back to Matthew 4 and Jesus' own 40-day fast. For us without a Jewish background or the same lens that Jesus' audience had, there's a lot going on under the surface with this fast in Matthew chapter 4. In this passage, Jesus overcomes the temptation of Satan, which Adam and Eve had previously failed at in the Garden of Eden. Here, Jesus is led into the desert for 40 days, just like the Israelites had been led into the desert for 40 years. And Jesus is tempted like they were, but where they failed to trust in God in that time, he passes the test. He fasts for 40 days and nights, just like Moses, almost showing that he is a new and greater Moses that hasn't come to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt, but has come to lead us out of slavery to sin into a new level of freedom. And one of the things we see as people who fail and are flawed and mess up daily is that Jesus is our perfect example. Jesus doesn't just die on the cross to forgive our sins, but he also lives the life that we should live. 
And we see here Jesus' perfect fasting, his perfect example, even though as we seek to follow Jesus, it's always imperfect at best. Jesus has fasted perfectly on our behalf so that even when we might fail at certain spiritual disciplines or practices, he has done them perfectly in our place already. Finally, in Matthew 9, verse 14 to 15, it says this. Then John's disciples came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, what's going on there is Jesus has got 12 disciples traveling along with them who are not fasting. John the Baptist has got disciples too, and they are most likely fasting two days a week. That's 48 hours every seven days that they're going without food. And then they hear, for some reason, Jesus' disciples are not fasting, and they are not thrilled about it. <laughs> they're a little bit confused, like, I thought you said when you fast, not if, but Jesus' disciples are not fasting. So they just skip John out and go straight to Jesus, and they're like, hey, what gives? Why do your disciples not fast? And Jesus gives them a really interesting example of a wedding. And he says that at a wedding, you do not fast, you eat. Now, in Jewish culture, these wedding celebrations were a big deal. They could go on for seven days, and everyone was expected to drop what they were doing, to stop working, to prioritize this wedding feast, and be a part of what was going on. In fact, this was such serious business that apparently if like a wedding procession was going past a rabbi who was teaching his disciples, the rabbi would stop what he was doing, and they would all cheer and be like, hey, you know, congratulations on what was going on, because this wedding feast was such a big deal. And Jesus is using the same example to speak to us about fasting and saying that he is the bridegroom of the church. So for the disciples being in his presence, being with him, celebrating and enjoying him, that is not a good time to fast. But Jesus was saying a time would come when he would leave and then they would fast. And I wanted to say practically for us, we don't fast when Jesus feels near. We don't need to then. I also want to say this, Jesus' name is Emmanuel, God with us, and whether Jesus feels near to you or not, He is with us. Jesus does not leave us or forsake us, but there are times where He does not feel near. He doesn't feel present, and maybe that's been a longer period of time. And when that is going on, when you're experiencing that or feeling that, that is a time to fast. When Jesus feels close, when His voice is obvious and you're just enjoying being with him, don't fast then, just enjoy being with him. But when he feels distant, that is a time. Fast, seek him, prioritize him, focus on him. And lastly, we fast in anticipation of his return. One of the things we see there is that while he is with us, we don't need to, but he would leave. But Jesus' disciples knew that one day he would come back and in that moment, there would be the greatest feast in the history of the world, far greater than any wedding celebration that had ever happened before. And in that moment, when Jesus returns and we are with him for all time, there will be no more suffering or hardship or sadness or tears or death or mourning or grieving. There will just be joy with him once and for all time, celebrating and enjoying him. But until that day, we fast. Until that day, we seek. Until that day, we carve out time to focus on him. And the invitation today is just to obey Jesus' call to fast. And I want to ask you these three questions before we take communion. 
So if you want to close your eyes where you are, you can stay sitting for now. But just in light of this message today, I think the first thing is, are you in Christ? Are you a Christian today? Because my message is not to everyone in this room that we should all fast. If you're not a Christian today, don't fast because fasting is about finding satisfaction in Jesus. My invitation to you first would be become a Christian. Repent and believe in Him. Begin to follow Him. Allow Him to forgive your sins. Begin a life with Him. Secondly, to those of you in this room who would call yourself Christians, my question is, does he feel close? Does Jesus feel close today? Again, he is with us, but does he feel close to you? Does your relationship with him feel intimate and tender? Otherwise, maybe now is a good time to fast, to to find a day this week or two days where you cut out eating to prioritize him and pray and seek him. And then lastly, we spoke about both fasting and feasting today. When we feast, we celebrate Jesus. We celebrate God and what he has done. And the last thing I want to ask you is, what can you celebrate now? What can you thank God for now? What, what can you worship him for and celebrate about him now? Let's stand together and I'll pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for the promise of Scripture that you are the one who satisfies us. And I just want to ask for that experience in our lives. I know all of us in this room are in different places right now, different places with you, different places in our lives. But my request today of you is that you would be the one who satisfies and that you would help us to come into a place where we are close with you and focused on you and enjoying you. Would you satisfy our souls? And where we are believing any lies that other things satisfy us more, I pray you'd expose them and reveal them and kill them in us. Help us to know your satisfaction and experience it and feel it. And even now as we come to communion and remember what you've done on the cross, remember your body broken and your blood shed, help us to celebrate you. Help us to enjoy you. Help us to be satisfied in you this morning. Before we take communion today, I wanted to read you guys a quote. Um, I think one of the things that I've always loved about communion is the fact that Jesus doesn't just give us a message, but he also gives us a meal. And we've spoken today about like gathering together and connecting around a meal and connecting with God outside of meals. But I read a story a while ago of an atheist who was starting something called the Sunday Assembly. It was kind of like church for non-Christians or church for atheists. And he went and he visited a bunch of churches to see what churches did and just to experience that as he was kind of preparing for what he did. And this was what he had to say about communion. He said, it's an idea that you can taste. I have some imagination, so this idea of grace and forgiveness, suddenly that idea of the divine is in your mouth. What a concept. It gets stuck in your teeth. It's something which is really interesting. And just this morning as you come forward and as you eat the bread and as you drink the juice, this is a reminder of grace as a meal, something that you can taste, of the goodness of God, the grace of God, the truth of God swirling around in our mouths, something that we'll swallow as we pray together. So enjoy this meal and come forward and celebrate what Jesus has done. We're going to break into groups around the room, but you can come forward and grab the bread and the cup.